Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm-mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And please stay tuned after this episode for a few minutes of mindfulness with Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass. Enjoy. David Ouellette is the CEO and founder of Allied Vaughn, a rapidly growing publishing service which markets and manufactures and fulfills licensed film and TV content from 192 content producers, including all the major movie studios, directly to consumers via e-commerce and digital streaming and through retailers. The company streams film and TV content and manufactures DVD and Blu-ray discs using a proprietary just-in-time process serving film collectors and the 157 million U.S. consumers who have inadequate internet service for streaming. David started a company which invented the process to bind styrofoam pellets into sheet form, which changed the packing industry when he was only 25 years old. This gave him his start as an entrepreneur. His next venture took him into the media business, beginning with videotape and evolved into DVD and now streaming. His most important role is father to his three enterprising daughters, of which I am the youngest. He has six grandchildren who teach him continuously about the fast-changing world. I'm his go-to source for everything about wellness, wine, and the wine business, and staying active through competitive sailing, golf, walking, and lots of home projects, and an unwavering positive attitude has allowed him to thrive through pancreatic cancer, business downturns, and aging. I can say personally, he's the most important person in my life. Welcome. Welcome so much, David. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you've obviously accomplished so much in your career. Um, We spoke before, and I feel really happy to hear all of these details because up until this time of getting to meet you, when people asked me about Liz and her dad and how close you guys are and what you do, I'm like, I think he invented styrofoam. (laughs) Um, So tell us a little bit in better detail what your career has been. Okay. Well, early on in my career, I had uh, an opportunity to apply uh, my job in polymer research to developing a new product aimed at packaging applications, and that was expandable polystyrene sheet. And so uh, the company that I worked for in a little uh, R&D group, a little skunk works as we used to call it, was not interested in that after um, after the uh, company was acquired by a large drug company. And so we made a deal with the new owner to buy that little R&D group and take it uh, out and start a new business. We thought we could uh, finish the development of the process and find some products to use with this new polymer that we had uh, figured out how to use. And over the years, we were able to build a business, find applications, and um, have the experience of starting a new company in a really little town in Wisconsin. And to our surprise, going out as as young people uh, to start a new company in this small town was greeted by just offers for help 
at every turn. And uh, one of the great things about being in that environment was everybody wanted to help. So over the years, we sold stock to the locals. In those days, there was something called an interstate exemption, which allowed us to sell the stock directly to people who were Wisconsin residents without any registration. And we did that by uh, putting a little, what's called a tombstone ad in the local newspaper, and people came in and bought the stock, including, I recall one day, a guy who arrived in his uh, blue jean coveralls and his boots and said, I heard about this business you're starting and I want to buy some of that stock. And so we brought him into the office and we talked about the details and we tried to tell him about the downside risk and all that sort of thing. He says, yeah, yeah, I know all that. Just, <laughs> just sell me some of that stock. At which point he reached in his coveralls and pulled out the biggest roll of cash I'd ever seen <laughs> and, and peeled out, you know, bills. I think he'd just taken his, uh, uh, livestock to the market that day. <laughs> so he was in town and he wanted to get in on this new business. So we had a lot of those kind of great experiences. Ultimately sold that business. And, um, and by the way, at that point, um, I was 25 years old when we offered to take the uh, R and D group uh, off and, and start this business. But we had a model. The, the company that I was working for originally had been started by a couple of guys that came over to Wisconsin from Dow Chemical Company. They were engineers. They started a business in the plastic industry. It thrived. It, it gave a shot in the arm to the economy of this little town. And so that was the environment that we moved into, and it was terrific. Um, stayed there for... Uh, about two and a half years, built another manufacturing operation on the West Coast in California, uh, in Orange County, south of L.A. And I had a five-year contract that uh, paid me as long as I didn't go back in competition with the company that acquired us. And so after about two and a half years, we decided we'd kind of finished up the things we said we could do with this business. We'd we we felt filled our commitments, and now it was uh, time to move on. And I had the uh, luxury of having another two and a half years of uh, guaranteed income while I uh, found something else to do. At that point, my wife and I had uh, two children. We decided we wanted to raise our family in Minneapolis. And so we moved there. I looked for a company to buy, found a little business that was in the display business and thought, well, this is a simple. I'll just uh, develop it you know, like I did in the plastics business. And uh, so what I learned after a couple of years is that the display business was not plastics of the era of the graduate where the guy said, uh, Benji, one word to the <laughs> plastics. <laughs> so we, we, and can you display meaning what I know what it means? But. Oh, well, this company manufactured flags and banners, yep. uh, sold parade float kits and Christmas decorations. And so I knew nothing about this business, but it was, it was there and I wanted to live there. And so <laughs> And, and there seemed to be a couple of talented people involved. 
And so I thought, we can make something out of this. Well, after a couple of years of trying, we concluded this was not going to work. And so we acquired another company that was an engineering company in media business. Their uh, service was uh, designing and installing video production facilities. The clients were TV stations and corporate headquarters operations that um, back in those days uh, allowed companies, and, and there were 15 Fortune 500 companies headquartered in Minneapolis, and they all decided in those days that they needed video production facilities in-house so that they could make video, uh, in those days it was VHS tape, make videotapes uh, to use to communicate with their shareholders, with their employees, and in some cases with their staff. And so that uh, kind of evolved into videotape duplicating. We rolled that business out to 15 markets around the country. And um, we were a significant duplicator and distributor of VHS tape when we got an offer from a venture capital group in New York led by Citicorp to sell that business into a company that they had formed that included their having purchased our major competitor. And so we did that. Um, their offer to us was uh, a phone call that said, okay, you blank, blank guys, you've been eating our lunch. We're going to buy you. <laughs> and so, Sounds like a VC mentality. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And so um, eventually we decided they were right. They were going to buy us. So we sold that business. Um, the headquarters then for our operation moved from Minneapolis to Long Island, to Hopog, Long Island, where it was combined with two other companies they had acquired. And the guy at Citicorp, who was my kind of handler, um, was a couple of years out of business school. And um, uh, early on, I uh, had a meeting with him. I brought him a manual that we had developed for integrating companies that we acquired. We had acquired about 30 companies over the years, had done a roll-up in the video duplicating business. And so we'd learned some things and we put them together into a little, what we called a manual. And so I offered it to him and uh, said, these are the things we learned. You might find this useful. He flipped open to one page, looked at it, slid it back across the table to me and said, oh, we don't need any of that. And I said, oh, really? Well, how do you integrate companies you acquire? He says, well, we just uh, slam them together and and uh, and keep going. He's like, thanks for the idea. I'll pass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. So my thought was to ask him. So how's that working for you? <laughs> you know, just like I didn't say it, but yeah. So okay. Um, fast forward a little less than one year, the company that we were merged with lost its largest customer and was heading for bankruptcy and with that gentle technique of slamming slamming them together yeah, yeah right well they, they made other mistakes they hired a guy to run this new combined business who um, unfortunately had missed all of the turns in the development of management over the years 
he was a real throwback and he had a military career and he thought the military model was a way to run a company <laughs> in the eighties. And, um, so he would say things in meetings, staff meetings, like, uh, an answer to a question that some person might ask about the company's direction, the vision, the things that we should be focused on. Uh, he would shut them down by saying, when I, want you to know that I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and we chef. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that was an interesting experience. Now I was not active. I was, uh, just a consultant at that point. I had agreed to stay on for two years to help with the transition, but I did a lot of trips to New York and I had a lot of fun working with the guys at Citicorp and, and realizing that, all of the knowledge about business does not reside in New York city. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very much an eye opener for me. The other thing curiously is that I found, um, in the process of closing our sale transaction, that the lawyers that the company used big, well-known law firm made some big mistakes and I, I also learned that um, uh, just because you're in a, you know, a very fancy law firm with a big name in New York doesn't mean you're a lot better than a lawyer in Minneapolis might be. In fact, the, the level was astoundingly mediocre. Hmm. Those mistakes were advantageous for us because we got to the closing and the attorney said to us, oh, by the way, I need to talk to you about an issue we have. And so... He described the issue. I knew all about the issue. It was a, a matter of announcing your plans to uh, your employees if you had more than 100 of them. It's called the, um, I forget the name, but anyway. And uh, and they neglected to do it. It was, it, oh, it's called the warn notice. So a company has to warn their employees that you're going to shut a facility down if that's thinking. Seems like a normal thing to do anyway. Right. Just as a human. Yeah. yeah. You'd think. Right. Uh, so here we are at the closing table. And he said, oh, by the way, I need to, you know, we need to talk about this. And um, he said, uh, you don't plan to shut those facilities down, do you? And of course, I saw an opening and I said, well, of course we do. Yeah, we're going to shut them down. He said, oh, well, then we've got a problem. And our response was, well, that's dope. You know, don't worry. We can solve that problem there were two rounds of those kinds of mistakes and the solution to each of them was for us to take money off the table and, you know, out of their pocket into ours and solve their problems for them. Just stupid Hmm. mistakes made by this law firm that they were paying $600 an hour to. So those were among the interesting, more interesting experience. So um, after a year, things are not going well. And um, when the largest client of the other company left, they couldn't sustain the business. And so the bankers then, who had a very thin, uh, actually, uh, equity position, you know, had really put very little money into it and, and highly leveraged the, uh, the deal, were gone because their equity was no longer viable. And so they said, uh, you can live on your receivables collections and you better hire a banker and sell this business. 
So they tried for a while to sell it, uh, thought they would sell it to me. I was interested in buying my old company back, but I wasn't interested in, in the other two parts of it. And they said, well, you know, the, the bank group that now owns this business will never sell it in pieces. You have to buy the whole thing. I wasn't interested in that. Um, many months went by deals they thought they had fell through. And, uh, in the end, there was an opportunity for me to step in and make a deal to get my old business back. At that point, I not only got my business, I got the other businesses as well. At probably a fraction of what you sold it for, I would imagine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and another one of the fun things was... I remember this faux retirement year <laughs> that you were yes, in. Yeah, I was, <laughs> Dad's retiring. Oh, wait. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I think I was 61 yeah. You or were so. bored. You didn't want to... You right. thought you wanted to retire. You didn't want to retire. Exactly. So, you know, I, I took up golf <laughs> and found that... It's fun for five minutes. For, yeah, a couple of weeks. Um, so the, the best deal I ever made in my life uh, presented itself as part of that transaction. There were about $40 million of receivables on the books. And now the company was going out of business. And so I read about a guy from Minneapolis by the name of Erwin Jacobs and how he made a fortune liquidating the W.T. Grant stores. W.T. Grant was a dime store chain, you know, Woolworths and those companies. And just as an aside, his daughter, Trisha, is one of my best <laughs> yes. childhood friends. So, so I'd read with interest how he had maneuvered this uh, uh, purchase of the receivables of W.T. Grant and made a fortune on it. So said to the banker who was in charge, there were um, seven banks uh, invested in this business. So they had a consortium and the lead bank was the Bank of Boston represented by a woman who came down to New York for the closing. And um, so I said, uh, well, I assume you have a department that will collect these receivables at Bank of Boston. And she said, no, we don't do that, why do you ask? And I said, well, we know all these customers and we have people that know how to collect receivables and I'd be happy to do that for you. And so the discussion went, she's asking, well, okay, you mean you wanna buy them? I said, no, I'll collect them. And what we worked out is that we did the collecting, we paid them a part of it and we broke the receivables up into tranches based on their age. Mm -hmm. So the things that were current, they got 90% of, and we took 10%. The things that were really old, we didn't give them anything. <laughs> we calculated what this might be worth, gave them an estimate, and they agreed. And um, subsequently, we collected those receivables, and we were much more successful than we had forecast. And so that was the best deal I'd ever done. <laughs> how did you know how to make all of these creative deals? And you know, now we all say pivot constantly, but that's really what your career has been, I think. I, I never knew. I, I'm an engineer by training. I knew very little about business, had no business education. And so it was kind of learn as you go and um, figure it out as the problems were presented, find solutions. And, um, I think um, 
you know, business isn't rocket science, as they say. It's, <laughs> it's not even polymer science. But, <laughs> but how much of it is gut? I mean, how much do you sort of listen to your gut or your instinct or whatever we want to call it? Because I, well, you know, um, you run into a lot of people in life who say to you, "Oh, you've you're operating your own business." So, oh, gosh, that's so that's so great. I wish I'd found something like that. And, uh, you know, old friends, old classmates, that sort of thing who, who, uh, didn't have that experience. And I think what it boils down to is that at some point you, um, kind of need to evaluate the opportunity. You need to think about what your capabilities are to exploit the opportunity. You need to think about what the gap is between what you know and, and know you can do and what you don't know. And then you have to make that leap of faith that says, I think I can fill the gap. I think I can figure out how to solve the problems. And it's that making the leap of faith that probably separates people who do it from people who don't. But it's also so much imagination. Yeah. Imagination, I think risk tolerance is a big part of it, too. Yeah. And I think imagination was a grocer. It's not like you come from, you know, this. That's right. Kind of background, or you ever, this was ever modeled for you. Yeah. And my father was a grocer in terms of he ran a meat market, one family owned meat market. Um, So, you know, I think there is uh, um, vision, and uh, you have to kind of believe in yourself. I mean, and early on, you know, I was in the business of, uh, in the plastics business with an engineering degree. I was single. And so venturing out with that first company seemed to me to have very little downside. I thought, well, if it fails, I can always get a job. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot through that experience, subsequently started, uh, adding a family to my responsibilities. And so, um, as, uh, got into various other things, where there was more risk, it wasn't as easy for me to just walk away and start over. The experiences that I had, I think, served me well to deal with it and make those evaluations. Well, what would you? What's your advice then for young entrepreneurs? Well, I think first of all, it's really important to be out there, mm-hmm. to be looking at what's going on, to be tracking markets that you are and businesses that you think might be exciting. Uh, I had an occasion um, in my first business to spend some time visiting with a guy at 3M company who was credited with uh, inventing scotch tape. His name was Dick Drew. And he said to me uh, in answer to my question, well, how did you develop scotch tape? He said, well, I stumbled on it. I was working on something else and I put this stuff on a piece of film and then I couldn't get it off. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) and so... And the and his little uh, punchline that I never forgot was, but remember, you never stumble over anything unless you're in motion. Right. Like I always say, serendipity doesn't happen when you're sitting on the couch. Like you right. have to be out there in the market kind of, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be watching what's going on, looking for opportunities. And then when, and then when you find them, and you decide to go, you got to be all in. Yeah. And so yeah. 
you know, but get in motion, get out there and, and, you know, let people know that you're interested in things and that you're looking and, and very often opportunities present themselves. Then you have to get to that evaluating and, and uh, making the final leap of faith. I think faith is a big one for you too, because I just remember you saying that you never really knew how you would pay for college, but you just had faith that at, when that time came, the money would be there. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think you know, faith in yourself, faith in maybe a higher purpose, whatever it is. I don't think you know. Even though we grew up Catholic, we're not really a religious family at all, right? Um, so I think faith is a big thing for you, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else about the business you want to mention? Well, specifically uh, in terms of uh, uh, building a team and uh, having a company that can thrive, um, I think it's important to uh, uh, for the the owner of the company or the leader of the company to set the tone, to to set the expectations, and then above all, to communicate the vision Mm. so that the people that you're working with understand where you want to go and, and can put their energies in alignment rather than going off and doing their own thing and, and not understanding where you want to go and therefore, uh, kind of, uh, you know, dispersing their energies. And then if you do that and you can never communicate enough, Mm -hmm. But if you can communicate the vision and then you um, make it real and, and get people engaged, then it's essential that your people feel like they're contributing, like they're uh, um, seeing what you want to do and you're not holding back, you're not keeping anything from them. They're, they're part of it. They're part of the effort and that you value their contribution. And I think that being valued is a really important part of keeping people engaged and helping them get to the point where they enjoy the satisfaction of success. One of the things we've never been good at, we've, we've built teams and we've built companies. Um, we've had tremendous engagement, I think, since we bought the business back at, at the end of uh, December in the year 2000. So that's 21 years or so. We've had two people retire, one person died, and everybody else that was with us is still there. That's amazing. So, so nobody ever leaves this company. <laughs> but but we, we try to communicate. We're totally transparent about how we're doing. We're a private company, but we give everybody the financials every month. And we try to be sure they understand how much we value their contribution. The one thing we've never been good at is celebrating our success. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why, but we never get around to that part. And we've been told that, you know, we've been we, people have said to us, "Well, why aren't you guys celebrating?" And I don't know. It's Do you just have not, like company parties or anything ever? Not, not really. really no. No, no, I think it's because you're not there yet. Uh, you know. Probably. You still, you still have work to do. <laughs> totally. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. What yeah. the way that you explain that is just such a better and clear and beautiful way of saying teamwork, you know, but people don't know that talking about a team includes all of those aspects. It's so nice to hear it spelled out from experience. Yeah. 
you know, and not like, hey, it's important people feel valued, but like we value their contributions. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you two know that you've seen that firsthand. Sure. And and you've been successful in getting your people engaged and and wanting to make you successful. I think you have to lead by example, too. I think that's sure a big thing that I've learned over the years. Exactly. Well, I'm as free as a bird now. Why are you singing? Because this Superbird cocktail is so damn delicious that it's making me burst into song. (laughs) Superbird's an amazing new ultra-premium Paloma cocktail that happens to conveniently come in a can. It's 100% handcrafted blue agave tequila from locally harvested and roasted Mexican agave piñas. It has no added sugars or artificial ingredients. It's sweetened with natural agave nectar and fresh grapefruit juice mixed with sparkling water. And I hear the team behind Superbird is about to release Superbird Free, where the tequila is aged in oak barrels to take on flavor. Free is just aged tequila, grapefruit essence, and sparkling water. The perfect tequila soda. And it's only 95 calories. Nice. And I love the labels. They're both beautiful and badass, just like Superbird itself. And listeners of the Fine Line podcast can receive free shipping by using the code FINELINE at checkout on their site, sprbrd.com. That's Fine Line for free shipping at sprbrd.com. We've been talking a lot lately about buying wine not from the front label, but instead buying from the back label where the importer has their logo. The best way to experiment with new wines is to find a few importers that you trust and then trying wines they import that you may never have had before. It's a very foolproof way to expand your knowledge and your palate. One of our most trusted importers is Hootenanny Wines. This is a female-owned and operated import company specializing in natural wines from Europe with incredible names like Duetere, Iuli, Arndorfer, and Vino Diana. These are boutique and well-respected producers in the wine world who are farming organically and biodynamically and making wine in the most low-intervention way possible without sacrificing taste or integrity. They are the slow fashion of wine. <laughs> Look and ask for Hootenanny at your local wine shop and be prepared to be blown away by their selections. So let's talk about health a little bit. Um, you've had some major health issues along the way. You're 85, which is incredible because for anyone out there who can't see my dad, he does not look 85. Um, you've had constant kidney stones later in life. You had pancreatic cancer. What has it been like for you to manage those challenges and how do you maintain your health now? Well, the biggest health event on the negative side for me was learning that I had a significant tumor in my pancreas and I didn't know what the pancreas was. Which was by accident, right? You went in for a kidney stone. Exactly. And they found cancer, which was like, thank you, kidney stones. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what happened. And so I remember the young uh, ER doc coming in after they did a CT scan to see if indeed it was a kidney stone and where it was positioned, saying, well, I've got good news and bad news. And uh, at that point, my wife was with me, and of course, she was a little shocked at that kind of flippant approach to it. So he said, what's good news? Well, the kidney stone is there, and it's teed up. It's going to pass. You'll be fine. What's the bad news? Well, there's an ominous mass on your pancreas. Ugh. And so you should consult your doctor. And and then he said, uh, but don't look up pancreatic cancer when you go home because it'll scare you to death. Because it's a death sentence normally. Normally it is. Yeah. You know, those... those You'll uh, have a heart attack and die from reading about the cancer. Exactly. <laughs> and and one of the difficulties with, 
with uh, that particular cancer, which you, you read more and more about these days, is that there are no symptoms until it gets to a, a state where there's no recovery virtually. Yeah, wow. yeah it's no always effect. like a stage four diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. So, it, but it's important to note that um, you can have tumors in a couple of locations in the in the pancreas, and the the most frequently occurring is in what's called the head of the pancreas, which is the intersection of all of the critical organs in your body. When a tumor occurs there, it disrupts so much and it's so difficult to remove surgically because it uh, is just tied together with the bile and the liver and the kidney and all that plumbing that comes together there. Uh, Typical uh, lifespan of people who uh, are diagnosed is uh, maximum two years. Many people die very quickly. My cancer was a little different than that. It was in what's called the tail of the pancreas. And that's more of a separate region and more easily dealt with separately. And so I had a tumor the size of a, size of a softball, wow. if you can imagine. Oh, my goodness. And they think it was probably growing for about four years. Discovered by accident. A um, little aside, I think everybody should get a full body scan every other year because I've run into so many people that have found cancer by accident like Mm. this. So anyway, I had surgery. I declined to do chemo or radiation. Um, The surgery was done by a guy at uh, the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, who was well known in this area. And in the post-surgical conference with the oncologist and the surgeon, uh, we discussed follow-up treatment. The oncologist was advocating that, uh, I think his words were, we we should throw everything we've got at it. And the surgeon said, I don't know that we need to do any of that stuff. I I got the tumor. I got good margins. I think you'll be fine. Meaning chemo and stuff like that. Chemo and radiation. Yeah. Uh, Kay put it to them, well, if it was your father, what would you recommend? I always say that. If it was your child, what would you tell me? Exactly. So the oncologist was for treatment. The surgeon said, well, you know, all that stuff is poison and it's not good for you. Agreed. And I wouldn't recommend it. So I followed the surgeon's advice, um, which Worked out fine for, um, well, from 2003 to 2015. I was being checked annually. And um, but by the way, they recommended that I go to a doctor who happened to be in at the uh, Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. And he was the guy who had the biggest practice in the country for this type of cancer. It's called neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer. And so um, regular checkups. And he said, if, if it reoccurs, it's most likely to present in the liver, I recall them saying. And so um, by about 2015, which is 12 years later, we started to see some sites in the liver that they thought were uh, probably new cancer sites. And so um, tracked that, the scans, uh, determined it was slow growing 
never definitively determined that it was cancer. We tried a biopsy once, but they botched the biopsy and didn't find any cancer cells. And so, um, in any event, um, it was suggested by the folks at Moffitt that I start a uh, autoimmune uh, treatment with a monthly injection. And we started with one product initially, and after a couple of years, switch it to another. And that has um, allowed the uh, two sites to be pretty much controlled and, and limited to very slow growth. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's kind of a ticking time bomb, but then, you know, as Liz said, I'm 85, so what <laughs> what can I expect? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the other guy that had the same cancer was Steve Jobs, start, uh, found at the same time I did. He lasted uh, 12 years, I think, and I'm going on 18 mm-hmm. years. So, And he refused chemo and everything as You know, well. I asked my doctor who had this big national practice was noted in this field what when jobs died i said you know what's your take on that his reply was i wish he'd come to me sooner hmm. jobs tried some uh alternative alternatives he yeah. went on a orange juice diet he he tried carotene he tried a, he horsed around for about a year and then he finally um sought real treatment and had surgery and you know he did he did survive for 13 years but my oncologist thought that he wasted a lot of time that uh, would have extended his life can i ask what it was like for you to get that diagnosis it just sounds terrifying you know it doesn't sound like something that most people know how to cope with yeah yeah that's an interesting question for me um it wasn't uh, such a big deal. Uh, I viewed it as... Uh, <laughs> You're right, our dads are so similar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, okay... I it's called compartmentalizing. <laughs> I thought, okay, this is a problem. Let's deal with it. You know, let's find the solution. Tell me what the alternatives are, and uh, let's go to work on this. Yeah, it's a business and, problem for you. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I'm I'm not going to become a victim of, of this thing. I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to... I'm going to keep moving. I got a lot of things I want to do. I can't be delayed with, by this. <laughs> so, um, but entirely different for my wife. It was it was um, very shocking for her. And while I felt I was in control, she didn't have any way of feeling in control. And so um, she had a hard time with it. And she was angry with me because she said you're in denial you should <laughs> you should be panicking and you're not you know? someone had to panic and it, it was her right right i mean there was a period of time where you guys were waiting you had gotten a diagnosis i think you were waiting to see how bad it was and you didn't want mom to tell us and so she had or anyone for that yeah, matter yeah. so she had to kind of suffer in silence which stinks and you know, in retrospect, I'm glad you didn't tell me because it ended up, you know, that you've lived now for, you know, how many more years, 20 more years. Yeah. But had it been a, a window, a short window, I probably would feel differently about that approach. But I think it's very endemic of like your generation. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's just not talk about it and maybe it'll go 
away. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, or like what use does talking about it have? Right. Yeah. Also, we grew up Catholic. It was very much a Catholic sort of thing. So, Well, and that's an interesting comment. I saw it a little differently. I saw it in terms of until we really know what's involved and, uh, and what the impact is going to be, um, it would be better not to worry anybody else about it. I think you're right. I mean, I, I get that side of it for yeah. sure. It's just luckily it worked out well. If, if you had yeah. called me and said, I have a month, I'd be like, I wish I would have known three months ago or uh-huh. whatever. I don't know how long yeah. that window was. So, yeah. But anyway, so yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. Wow. Well, but that definitely was my predilection to, <laughs> to have the answer first yeah. before talking about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had the opposite experience when my mom got cancer and my dad told us right away and I was five and I was like, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> and then we just waited to see if she was going to survive, you know, so. So you can see both. Yes, I see both sides so much. I don't think that there's a right or wrong choice. I think both sides are so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, it's an impossible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but your gosh. mom is still alive. We should mention. Yes. <laughs> so. Oh, great. Yeah. So. She is. Yeah. Um, yeah, 30, 30 years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about your background in the plastics industry, back to the graduate. Um, <laughs> you know, so much of what we talk about, especially here in Boulder, of course, is single-use plastics. We all have our water bottles. We all, you know, people have metal straws. Um, there's a lot of uh, awareness around it. And I'm really curious to hear what your perspective on the, the plastics industry is now. You know, uh Years ago, we developed this material that's it's a foam polystyrene. It's used for things like egg cartons and meat trays and, and um, uh, protective packaging applications. And they, our kids thought it was pretty cool to be able to say their father had uh, invented styrofoam. Today, of course, it's something <laughs> you, you never want to admit to. You have to put an asterisk by yeah, it. Right. He didn't know. <laughs> So, um, you know, after seeing your questions, Emily, I went to Google and asked how many water bottles are disposed of in this country annually. Do you know that number? I don't. Well, two or three sources uh, peg the range at 35 to 50 billion, with a B, water bottles annually. And... Uh, you can't um, you can't get your head around that kind of number. That's it's just so awful. Awful. I don't yeah. know how to picture that quantity. I yeah. know exactly. And and so or you know, why? Yeah. So, so you know you look on the table over there and there are yeah. a bunch of yeah. water bottles. Um, it's very sad. It's sad for our planet. Um, just wastes so much resource and uh, pollutes and. Um, uh, I can't think of any redeeming feature, really. Um, I could try to defend the fact that uh, some of the things that my old development are used for are functional and uh, have a little better purpose than just uh, throwing away a water bottle. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's just not good stuff. You, you're on the right track. You know, you should be refilling your yeah. water Well, you know, I do also think it's important to say that um, clean water and hydration for me are more important. Like I just I just do care more about people and making sure that people who can't necessarily carry around their hydro flask, um, 
you know, have water. So I think I think it's important to be open about the entire world, but obviously the amount that we use and throw away is not necessary. Yeah. And it's part of a trend that began shifting. Um, you probably remember when, you know, people used to drink uh, uh, what we call pop or sodas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in an office environment, people would have a Coke can going on their desk sets or anything. And then there was this shift. And I don't remember what, what period it, it started, but I guess. Um, I think I was in high school because I remember you and mom being like, we're not buying water. There's a tap over there yeah. and you can get a glass. <laughs> and but, but it was kind of fancy to go buy Pellegrino or whatever. Oh, was, yeah. You know. Yeah. But then the other the other thing that changed, the trend that changed is that the uh, negative health effects of sodas um, was beginning to rec- be recognized. And so there were a lot of recommendations to stop drinking the the uh, you know heavily uh, sugared sodas and drink water, and our country embraced that, and there was a huge shift, and um, all the beverage companies like Coca Cola all bought water companies, yeah. you know, because or made it, energy drinks which are yeah also high in yeah, sugar yeah right, and so that happened, and that was considered to be. Uh, an improvement in the health condition, but the unintended consequence is that it ends up being put in these little bottles and uh, and they're disposed of in in a quantity that I can't believe. Yeah. What about sailing? That has been such a important part of your life. What has sailing meant to you, and how did you get into it? I mean, we grew up in the land of ten thousand lakes, so. Um, there's water at every turn. Yeah. <laughs> um, sailing for me is, is, I enjoy all kinds of sailing, but mostly what I focused on and enjoyed was competitive sailing. I mean, really competitive sailing. Uh, sailing a boat that was a racing machine with a crew of seven and uh, very fast, very sporty, very challenging, which also attracted uh, guys who were really notable world-class sailors. And uh, there's a sailing association in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, those states. And the guys we competed with were Olympic medalists. They were very accomplished sailors, competitive sailors. And that I just had an affinity for. I loved the competition. I loved the the team building and the teamwork required. And I love the fact that it was a total mind, what, what's the word I want? Uh, uh, like it, a mental challenge? A mental close. challenge, but it also just cleared my mind. Yeah. You know, out on the race course for an hour, I felt like I'd had a total wa- mind wipe. I had been totally absorbed and focused on the progress of our boat against the other boats in the race and wasn't thinking about anything else. And that was very refreshing for me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that, uh, you know, part of maintaining your health is if you like competing, I think competing is stimulating, you know, keeps the juices flowing mm-hmm. and is is a good thing to do. Now I see where you get it. Yeah, exactly. You know where I come from now. 
These nice men growing up, it would be my Uncle Jay, who was like the sweetest man ever. My father, another sweetest man ever. Howie, like all these guys that that I grew up with. And they were the nicest men. And sometimes I'd have to go out on the boat for extra weight if it was super windy. And these men turned into like, goddamn mother, like shouting each other shouting expletives, like totally different people out there. And then they'd come back and be normal again. It was like almost like- Good race, guys. You got, yeah, you, you got something out during, and it's high stress. And But I think there are certain sports, like rock climbing is like this. I think golf is like this, where if you're not fully focused on what you're doing at that moment, there's consequences. You're going to yeah. lose a race. You might yeah. fall off a cliff. You might, you're not going to have a good golf game. And then there are sports like running and biking where you can kind of actually play the loop of whatever's bothering you and clear it that way. So I think there are different sports that have the same end result, but sort of process it in a different way. And interesting observation. I think, I think you're right on with that. To be in, in the zone. Yeah. 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 The other thing you mentioned stress, um, all of my career I've, uh, looked at things that talk about uh, how to relieve stress, how to deal with stress, uh, you know, kind of all aimed at, at running away from stress or getting away from stress. And my reaction to that has always been that I, th I think stress is really good. I think for me, um, stress is motivating. Stress keeps me going. I, I think uh, a certain amount of stress is important in your life. Uh, you know, I think of it, the opposite of that would be ha having no stress at all and being totally relaxed and, and not caring about anything much and not being bothered or concerned. And uh, I don't think that's very healthy. You see where I come from again? Yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, you know, I think, of course, stress is a motivator. Um, and I think there are so, so, so many negative health consequences of having too much stress or stress all the time. So I think if you're going to be a person who jumps into that stress as a motivator, it's extra important to have competitive sailing or have something that is physical and, you know, clears your mind and, you know, like you need a break still. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're all, we kind of get into these loops of like, now I can't sleep because I'm thinking about everything stressing me out. And, you know, now I can't focus on this time with my family because I'm feeling stressed about work. I think also because you kind of like it and embrace it, it doesn't stress you out the way <laughs> it stresses other people out. Like stress yeah. doesn't stress you out in a way. Yeah. yeah. So that's maybe a part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you're right. He also has ways to clear it. I love that. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so tell us about something that you are excited for, um, personally, professionally. Well, personally, I'm excited to see how um, my kids and grandchildren's careers are developing, and the you know the the courses they've chosen for their life. Uh, we just came from a graduation weekend, and it's exciting to see uh, a grandson starting the rest of his life, starting his career, and and to learn about uh, his perspective on it. And it's exciting to see how those things develop. We've got a grandchildren child in law school. We've got Liz who's done exciting things in business, in the wine business. I, I am excited about that. 
That's so sweet. Proud Papa. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm also currently pretty excited about the growth in my business, the, the company that I'm currently still very much running. And um, it, we're having some just uh, terrific opportunities after years and years of what I call missionary work. We've gotten positioned to a point where now good things are happening to us. That's exciting. The other thing I'm particularly excited about is what's happening in uh, Washington. Uh, this whole crazy experiment of putting all this money into the economy and sending everybody in the country a, a check, whether they need it or not, is, I think, really interesting. Um, business people that I know, except for the hospitality industry, you know, unfortunately, the it's total downside for restaurants and for uh, travel business and that sort of thing. But most other businesses are thriving right now. And I think they're thriving as a result of all the financial stimulation that the government is engaged in. And it's, um, you know, if you happen to come from a Republican point of view, you're you're wringing your hands and saying, oh, you know, the economic theory is that'll never work. It's going to cause inflation and we're all going to suffer and the government can't just can't keep printing money. And I'm not sure that's correct. <laughs> and we're going to find out. And I think it's exciting to see this, what I consider to be a kind of a bold new experiment. Mm -hmm. It's very much like um, what's referred to as the New Deal that Roosevelt uh, managed. I wasn't around for that. I'm not quite that old, but, but, um, I'm excited to see what happens. Um, and excited to see, uh, some civility return to, yes. you know, life around, uh, politics. Yeah. Amen to that. That's such a good list of things to be excited about. Now I yeah. feel excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. This really this means so much. Yeah. Now Liz gets to have this recording forever. Exactly. Family, all your grandkids get to hear how proud you are of them. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. And I, I, you know, from time to time we've been asked to tell our story to our grandchildren. We never really do it. So yeah. maybe this will kind of help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Well, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening, tuning in. Please do rate, review, and hit subscribe and head over to our website, finelinepodcast.com. If you want to donate or see some of our partners or our sponsors or any of our sponsorship codes where you can get some good deals on some fun stuff. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> this is Kathy Hoyo with A Balanced Class, and thank you for joining us for a few extra moments of mindfulness. Inspired by the comments we heard from David on this week's podcast, I'd like to spend a little time on the idea of movement and the meditative benefits of moving mindfully. It's one of my favorite topics in the whole area of mindfulness because, and this is going to sound odd, but moving meditation is such a relief. I remember when I first started meditating that I was kind of overwhelmed by all the sitting and the sitting very still and the sitting very still for long periods of time. Do you know what I mean? At first, it just seemed impossible, and I'd get frustrated and feel like I wasn't doing the meditation thing right at all. But then a teacher came along and shared with me that moving mindfully is also a good option for meditating, whether you're just starting with a practice or you're an experienced meditator. 
It was a light bulb moment, and I was so relieved. So I started trying it. At first, I was like, "Okay, so we're going for a walk, right?" But no, there's more to it than that. It turns out. For the podcast this week, I wanted to share with you the three things I've learned about moving mindfully. The first thing I learned is ironic because moving mindfully means getting very comfortable with the feeling of your feet solidly on the ground and not actually moving. Instead, find the four corners of each foot, two on either side of your heel and two on the edges of the ball of each foot. Sometimes it's nice to rock a little side to side and front to back to find those four corners on each foot and then try to distribute your weight evenly among those four corners. Give yourself a little time for this moment of moving mindfully. That's the first thing and it's where mindful movement starts. The second thing I learned that I wanted to share is to take one step and then another and maybe then a few more before you turn around and take the same number of steps in the opposite direction. You heard right, you're literally walking back and forth, back and forth. See if you can do it slowly and, of course, mindfully. Just like the first experience of finding the four corners of each foot, walking meditation isn't about covering large spaces. Walking meditation is about doing it mindfully, even if it's just two or three or four steps in each direction. The third thing about moving mindfully that I wanted to share is something Jack Cornfield shared in one of his teachings, a poem from his friend Barbara Ruth. She said, I once walked six miles from my house to camp in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. That includes time resting with lizards, sunning on the rock, and writing down a dream, remembered, staring at Mount Barnaby. That, friends, is moving mindfully indeed. I hope this helps and thank you again for listening.